Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Dr. Melissa Boswell. And I'm Dr. Hannah O'Day. And we're researchers at Stanford University. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Boom. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And today we talk to Ray Browning and Zach Lerner, the co-founders of Biomodem, which is a rehabilitation robotics company developing robotic systems that help improve people's mobility by assisting them and also retraining them. It was so cool to hear from Ray and Zach's different perspectives. Ray's more from the translation and business standpoint as an entrepreneur, and Zach's more from the science and technology standpoint as an academic professor, and how they brought them together to create impact. Both speak about the value of user-centered design in each of their current roles and throughout their career, and as you know, Melissa and I just love that. Stay tuned for some great tips on how to get started with entrepreneurship toward the end of the interview, which I know Melissa and I also really, really appreciated. Yeah, and it was cool to learn about this interplay between academics with Zach being a professor and entrepreneurship and Ray sort of leading that end, but how those really work well together with academics driving novel and new innovation. And then with the entrepreneur side, like really figuring out how we can get those into users' hands. So thought that was really cool and like a good learning for anyone who's interested in really translating research out into the world. You get the best of both worlds. Of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get started, we wanted to ask that if you enjoy Boom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us and share Boom with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. So literally anyone that you know can <laughs> share it with them. This is the month of love. So if you want to give some love. special someone we're so really so grateful for our listeners all of you and we would like to give a special shout out to david who left the following review they said hey boom doctors first off congrats on being doctors what an accomplishment and we would just like to say thank you david Thank you for recognizing this. Thank you, David. (laughs) Hey, right back at you. And thank you. (laughs) He followed that by saying, I just want to say I love listening to your podcast on my road trip home for Christmas break. And the episodes with Antonia, Jacob Gooden, and Scott Delp were very thought-provoking. Nice job. And keep it up. Happy holidays. So happy holidays to you, too. And we agreed those episodes were awesome, but awesome guests. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, you might want to start driving. Yeah, start and, driving uh, and go back. The queue. <laughs> Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. All right. Well, we have a bit of boom for you today. Today's a little bit of boom is an article by Kimberly Ingraham and colleagues at the University of Michigan. And Elliot Rouse is the last author of this paper who we bring up during the interview. And I also just want to quickly say that I refer to him as Elliot Roos in the interview. So that was embarrassing, but it is what it is. So if everyone could just pretend like that didn't happen, that would be really great. (laughs) Anyway, the name of the article is The Role of User Preference in the Customized Control of Robotic Exoskeletons. And the motivation for the study is that user preference may capture the multifactorial nature of exoskeleton use, so it might be a promising objective for exoskeleton control. 
And in their study, they measured the control preferences of 12 individuals wearing bilateral ankle exoskeletons during walking across various speeds, device experience, and technical background. They had the participants self-tune the magnitude and timing of the peak torque, but they were blinded to the control parameter. So they really only could rely on their perception of the assistance. And they found that even though user preference is a dynamic quantity, participants were able to repeat their preferences. And interestingly, knowledgeable users preferred a higher torque than naive users, but the naive users preferred a higher torque as the experiment progressed. But overall, it motivates that control strategies should be customized with assistance according to users' unique preferences, and that it provides meaningful insights into exoskeleton interaction, which we also talk about in the interview, the importance of bringing users in, personalizing it to their unique preferences and what their goals are. So it's cool to see studies like this, you know, more rigorous studies, really quantifying that and looking at repeatability and that sort of thing. And then we hear from Ray and Zach on what that really looks like in the real world too, when fitting users with device based on what they want to do. Yeah. And it was really exciting to see how they use this paper as motivation, inspiration, and also sort of guidelines for how they work. And it's just nice to see that in the field. Like, you know, we are all a team trying to get to hopefully a similar objective of trying to help people and make the world a better place. So really nice to see that. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like, even though they aren't directly working together, some work that a researcher is doing is inspiring other researchers and other companies. And and so, yeah, that's a really great point that we're able to still work together by doing good science and, and publishing it and making it available for other people. Wait, wait. Keep keep up the good work, everyone. Yes. <laughs> if that's not motivating. Okay, well, let's go over to our interview and have some fun with Ray and Zach. Today, we are talking with Ray Browning and Zach Lerner from Biomodem. Ray is the CEO and co-founder of Biomodem. He's an entrepreneur, innovator, and clinical researcher with 30 years of product development, startup, academic, and Fortune 100 experience, including with Nike. Zach is a chief science officer and co-founder of Biomodem, and Zach is also an associate professor at Northern Arizona University and a leader in rehabilitation robotics research. Thank you both so much for being with us. We're really excited to, to talk with you. This came about, I think, from seeing you actually in the lab. You some had a user actually wearing one of your devices from Biomodem, one of our lab mates, and I look over and he's walking down the, the hall with it and yeah, it was really exciting. So we're, we're happy to really have you on and, and learn more about it. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. We've already had some fun stories with you all offline before the interview. And I'm excited to start with your stories, sort of where it all began. So our first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to be biomechanist or maybe, maybe involved in rehabilitation research or however you want to define yourself? <laughs> yeah, good question. I was... Like a lot of 17 or 18-year-olds, I was a, grew up in a small town in the mountains of Colorado, went to Colorado State University, thought that for some, I don't know, was good in math and science, so I wanted to get into engineering. And, and almost immediately when I got there, I connected with a professor who was involved in what I would call the early kind of advent of biomedical engineering. So I was working on 
we, we helped him with some Doppler blood flow meters and some other things and got involved in some other projects that were really using my engineering, my growing engineering arsenal to address human or biological problems. And that just sounded really cool. That sounded like a really interesting idea that, wow, you know, you can apply these principles to lots of things related to helping others, whether those are, you know, human or animal. And that was really, that was really kind of the way that I put the two pieces together. And then my first job out of college as a mechanical engineer was working for Rollins Sporting Goods and ended up spending most of my time in Haiti in a baseball factory. Had nothing to do with biomechanics, but it was a life-altering experience in a lot of ways. And then came back and had some other things happen in life. Wanted to kind of better align my passions with continuing education. And I did my master's degree, supposed to be a PhD, but ended up with a master's degree at UCLA with Bob Greger studying uh, cycling mechanics because I was really into bike racing at that time. And I wanted to combine my passion of athletics with my engineering skills. So that's kind of how it started for me. Yeah, I think it's awesome. To... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Zach. Oh, I don't know if you're, <clears throat> if you're um, looking for my story as well. Um, you want to comment on Ray's? I think that was good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, please. Ray. Yeah, we want to hear from you, too. <laughs> Ray was going to pretend to be you, but, you know, it's better that now we've got you, so. <laughs> oh, that would have been good. It would have been much more entertaining. <laughs> I doubt it. I think similar to Ray, you know, I kind of was predisposed to the engineering mindset and kind of just knew I was going to get into engineering. Um, but I actually kind of switched majors a few times in college between mechanical engineering and exercise science um, because I was really just inherently interested in studying the human body and in biomechanics. And um, for me, going into graduate school in biomedical engineering was the perfect way to, to combine those things. It, I was fortunate enough to earn a position into Ray's lab at Colorado State when he was a professor there. And that's where um, Ray and I kind of kicked off our over. 10 years of our relationship. And one of the driving factors for me was around the time when I started college, my mom had a hip joint replacement when she was around 50 years old, which is relatively young for, for someone. And she had a teenage injury where she severed her sciatic nerve, which caused her to walk with a drop foot for the next 20, 30 years. And so that pathological gait pattern eventually resulted in abnormal wear on her hip joint. And, um, that just was really interesting to me. I wanted to see, to learn more about why that was happening to, to certain people and if we could design interventions and wearable devices that could prevent that from happening. Um, because, you know, as you have a hip joint replacement that young, the, it's very likely that you're going to have a subsequent replacement. And every time you replace a joint, the integrity of the underlying tissue degrades. And so it's possible that you may end up in a wheelchair. And so that was pretty impactful for me and, and really drove a lot of the kind of research questions and directions. One of the projects that Ray and I got to work on together was on the opposite end of the, the lifespan, working with children. And um, I think there's just immense potential when, when studying pediatric conditions and disorders because you're able to change someone's entire lifelong trajectory and you can be really impactful with small changes in the, in the very beginning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think 
I think to to anyone, it is really motivating when we think about how our engineering skills can be applied to helping people like Gray was talking about, but then especially with people, you know, in your own life and, and seeing that firsthand, how the impacts on mobility can make a huge difference. You know, that's extremely motivating as well. And I like your point to with children, you know, they're shaped at such a young age and being able to really help them in a way that will affect the rest of their lives. Like that's, that's really impactful. So um, yeah, so it makes sense that you are where you are and we're excited to, to learn more about how you are helping children and, and people with mobility disorders. One thing that caught my attention though, is that you said you've had over 10 years of collaboration and then, you know, eventually has led to the founding of Biomodem together. And I'm curious what about your relationship has really supported this long-term collaboration and then eventually forming a company together. Maybe Zach, do you want to start? With this one? Yeah, I want to hear the sure. answers, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> Should I? <laughs> I don't know if there's a, a big secret. It just kind of, you know, happened. Ray and I work really well together. We have a, I found that my PhD with him was really successful. And I earned my PhD and still really liked and respected Ray. And so I wanted to keep working with him. And at that point, he was transitioning into a position at Nike. And, you know, several years later, when um, I, you know, I wanted to start translating some of the technology in my research lab into commercial products where they can have, you know, a much bigger societal impact, I reached out to Ray and I was, you know, begging him to, you know, collaborate again and see if we could work on this project together. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's your side of that, Ray? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted... In the in the academic setting, I felt like it was um, really important that everybody felt valued, and we all got along, and and um, we had a lot of we had all kinds of different projects going on in that space, and you know I think friendships formed in, in particular Zach and I. It was it's always 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 so fun to have somebody who's as talented. You know, you get a really really talented individual who's just just kind of moving not only their understanding but your understanding and the field's understanding way faster than you thought would happen and um so i think we formed a good bond we also think zach and i shared i mean we built a climbing wall in my garage uh together which was a super fun project so we shared more than just the interest in the science of you know human performance and you know when you have the opportunity to mentor somebody i don't think of that as a as a four year and done exercise, you know, it's always one of those things where, you know, you want to see these individuals just achieve continuing success and grow their careers and that. So when Zach asked me if I wanted to be a part of, you know, growing Biomodem, I was like, of course, that sounds like a really fun thing to do. And, and I have had, I think Zach knew I would probably say yes also because I don't tend to do anything for that long. <laughs> So I was done with the Nike thing for, for, you know, we can, that's a whole nother story, but, um, and, you know, looking for another opportunity to make an impact. So, um, you know, I think that was, I was grateful and still am for the opportunity. It's been super fun. It shows how you have multiple passions and you kind of integrate what you're doing into all of them. And I, I just like, it's cool to see that in both of you and the stories you've told already. And now what you're doing with Biomodem, I'd be really, we're really curious, Ray, if you want to start and just tell us a bit, 
about the current projects that you're excited about with Biomodem, maybe how you've narrowed from that big list of what you were doing in the beginning to what you're focused on now. And then Zach, after, could you just tell us the crossover with your research at the University of Arizona um, and how you manage both of those? Yeah, I'll start by saying that the, the technology that we're using is entirely of Zach and his team's creation. So I'm going to take no ownership of that at all. I say that with, you know, it's, it's definitely not mine. So my job <laughs> has been <laughs> to really try to figure out how you take something that clearly has potential impact on a group of people. I mean, it's a technology that works. You have evidence, you see it improving the lives in particular, you know, of these pediatric patient populations with cerebral palsy. And, you know, the challenge that I've been trying to help navigate is how do you actually make that available to people in, you know, as a, as a product? I mean, how do you actually get it into their hands so that they can use it? They can, physical therapists can use it. Patients can use it. It can improve their lives. And that's really what I have been more focused on. And it is, uh, to, it is drinking from a fire hose. It is extremely, uh, there's a lot to learn when you go from the idea to the making the idea into something that somebody can buy. <laughs> there's a lot in there that that I think neither Zach or I really sort of took full. You know, I'm still like, really? Oh man, that sounds hard. <laughs> so it's been a whole nother education for sure. So I I focus more on the business side and leave all of the science to Zach, um, and he just keeps producing cool. Oh, we can use it for this, and we can use it for that, we can use it for that. It does make it, you know, in terms of focusing, you can't do that broad sort of thing in the, in this, especially in the medical device industry. It's just not, it's not an approach that can work. It can work if you're building something that's not inside the medical device system. But once you go, if you're saying, all right, we want to help patients with diagnosed medical conditions, you have a you, you have to stay really, really focused on what your product is, who it's for, how it's going to work, who it's going to work for. And that's felt a little, I think for both Zach and I, a little constraining. You know, it's like, ah, you'd like to do this and this and this and this and this, you know. But at the end of the day, you have to show that you can bring something closer to market. Show to investors, to, you know, other organizations, so... Do you have any, sorry, I have a quick question before Zach answers. I, I'm just wondering if you have any insights on how you narrow down, because this is definitely something that I've felt before when we develop something and I'm like, oh, we can use it for so many different populations of people and diseases and these different things. And then, you know, it really, you do have to narrow it down and kind of be specific at first. And it does feel constraining. And I'm wondering in your experience, what has been helpful in figuring out where to start that initial focus. Two things. Don't drink too much of your own Kool-Aid. You probably made something <laughs> useful, um, but it may not, it may not be, it's probably not as exciting to anybody else as it is to you. So just start there. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the second thing is identify where the unmet need is. So figure out who needs it. You know, what is the urgent unmet need where somebody sees it and goes, that would change my life. Right. And then, and that's where you need to focus. Other other responses you might get are, hmm, that's interesting. You know, that's kind of cool. 
And so I, I think you really have to, you really have to be humble about, you know, in particular, if you're, if you're, if you're building something that people probably haven't had any experience with, you know, uh, powered orthoses or, or, uh, you know, light nimble exoskeletons like we're making, it's not like you're going to walk in and go, Oh, this is the latest version of, you know, it's like, Oh, I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> so you're trying to focus on an area where you think that the greatest opportunity is in terms of you have a willing and ready market for your product. If you, don't do that and you don't do that homework. We've seen a lot of companies not succeed because they've built a product and then tried to find a customer. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. Build the hammer, look for the nail. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And we do it. I mean, we do it all the time, right? We, ah, oh, this will work, you know? And then you realize, well, yeah, it probably does work, but nobody wants it right now. It's too early. It's too expensive. It's too something, you know? So that would be my advice, Melissa. Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah, thanks. That makes a lot of sense. I like the, the first part, don't drink your own Kool-Aid. I think just like, yeah, be realistic <laughs> about things. Yeah, but then the second part of finding the need, I think, is something really important um, and something I think we always need reminding of. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, labs can be isolating. Mm. Academia can be isolating. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Zach, it's finally your turn to... <laughs> <laughs> We're really excited to hear, yeah, about your experience. Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to add is it turns out that the idea and the prototype is like just by far and away the easiest part. (laughs) Um, And and so Ray was kind of, you know, minimizing his contributions in those aspects. But Biomodem wouldn't exist without him. And he's doing the much, much, much harder part, which is trying to turn this idea into a product that can help people's lives and everything from fundraising to, you know, implementing and um, deciding on a regulatory pathway, um, quality management system, building um, a team on a limit, on a shoestring budget. It's just tremendously difficult. I think it's at the end, it's going to be rewarding and it's certainly very challenging. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to make that, you know, crystal clear. I think to to speak to a little bit about maybe the idea, uh, what's really motivated us is really practical, realistic solutions to improving mobility. So I've never really been interested in tethered exoskeletons, for example. So always jumping right into battery-powered wireless systems that we first test in the lab, but ultimately, you know, they're kind of intended to be used outside of the lab, ultimately at home and in the community, and so our trajectory has kind of followed that where, you know, we developed this battery-powered exoskeleton and first tested in a really controlled environment in the lab on a treadmill. Um, but knowing that we want to get outside of the lab, we develop adaptive controllers that allow us to um, provide assistance that adapts to different terrains, different gait patterns, different gait pathologies, clinically evaluating the technology, then over ground, and then on inclines and declines and stairs, and then across mixed terrain. So that's been kind of our trajectory. And one other kind of unique thing about our technology is we don't think about it just as an assistive exoskeleton where it's providing positive power to the user. It's also a gait rehabilitation tool where we resist specific targeted movements to increase recruitment of muscle groups that could really benefit from 
this targeted therapy. So for where we've started uh, with the technologies with cerebral palsy, and the goal is to improve plantar flexor muscle recruitment. So through that improved recruitment, we can reduce or minimize some of the pathological gait patterns. So reducing crouch, increased forward propulsion, walking speed, and we do that by resisting the plantar flexor muscles through it, using the device and also incorporating real-time biofeedback. So that's kind of a holistic perspective that we've taken where we want to develop a, a single platform that can be used both to help a kid you know, keep up with their family when they're walking the dog around the block, uh, but also something that can be used at home. So ultimately, they don't need to use the device because I think if there's anything we've learned or I've learned over the last 10 years is no one wants to wear a leg brace powered or otherwise, if they can help it. So our goal is to, to make that a reality. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. I think a question that used to come up a lot with exoskeletons is are muscles going to be atrophying because you're giving them assistance or, you know, how is that going to be affecting strength? But I really like that you're, you're saying that your, your device doesn't just serve as assistant, but also potentially helping you know, to improve gait, recruit different muscles that, that are beneficial for improving their gait. And, and yeah, I think it's something that I haven't heard of much before, but it's really motivating. I think you can see the motivation to, to help people kind of move away eventually from assisted device if that's, that's possible. And I, I think about that sometimes with technology just in general or apps on your phone or that sort of thing that are meant to like help with therapies or treatments. And it's like, where can we, how can we support people in a way where eventually they don't need that anymore? Um, but I hadn't heard that with exoskeleton. So it's really cool to hear that. Melissa, I have a surprise bit of boom for you. Ooh, I love surprises. <laughs> Did you know the type of electrode used when measuring EMG is actually one of the main sources of error? In fact, the variety of electrode type, the size, interelectrode distance, and the locations of the electrodes themselves can all have adverse consequences on data collection. Definitely. The design of the electrode is even more important when incorporating this with human-machine interfaces like the exoskeletons we've been talking about. For example, you don't want to introduce artifacts into your signals when the suit is directly over the sensors. Mm, that makes so much sense. I mean, the only way to get accurate data is to use the right equipment for your study, and it's so nice that our sponsor, Delsys, has such a wide variety of reliable EMG solutions. If our listeners would like to enter the drawing and have a chance at winning some of the latest Delsys EMG equipment, you can visit delsys.com boom. A question that I had actually was before the interview, Ray shared uh, some work by Professor Elliot Roos, who's leading work motivating strategies for lower limb exoskeletons in which individuals customize assistance according to their unique preferences. And I'm curious how user preference plays a role in your work at Biomodem and the exoskeletons that you're building. I know, Zach, maybe you want to start off. Yeah. So something that comes to mind is when you're developing a, a product that someone will choose to use, whether or not they do so really comes down to how they feel about it and how the device makes them feel and not some other biomechanical measure like metabolic cost of transport. And so we kind of keep that in mind when evaluating the technology and, and developing different control strategies um, and how the device fits and feels on the body because 
you know, you could increase positive ankle power by 50%, but if it doesn't feel beneficial to the person, then they're not going to, it's going to end up in their closet. And I think that's really important to Ray and I, that we're not just creating more closet junk. So we really value the user experience and um, we try and capture that lived experience when we're, you know, we certainly as biomechanists want to perform all of the biomechanical evaluations. And that's where we, that's where I certainly really enjoy um, spending my kind of my focus. But in, in terms of uh, uh, the product development process, the user experience, I think, is, is absolutely critical. And so we like to incorporate that throughout the development process in, in whether or not it's how do we evaluate a more effective biofeedback mechanism and get people involved in, um, in that aspect of the device or whether it's tuning assistance. And so the work by Elliot Rouse at Michigan is, is really interesting and, and um, he's certainly a leader in that space, I think. Challenges assumptions, right? I think you, you can't assume. You have to ask. <laughs> you know, we built a lot of exoskeletons early on because we assumed that people with complete spinal cord injury, their number one goal in life was to walk. That isn't true, if you ask them. They have a lot of other things on their list when you've incurred, you know, uh, even if it's lower limb paralysis, that are really high priority uh, things, right? They want to maybe be able to stand. That's usually pretty important on the list. They want to be able to have sex. They want to be able to get rid of a, a bag that stores, you know, their waste. There's a lot of things that they would like to have different that they would prioritize. And, oh, they've got a powered wheelchair that goes four and a half miles an hour. It gets them around wherever they want to go. So, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, you go, the assumption was that, oh, this is going to be life-changing for them. But then we built these huge, complicated, expensive, and heavy systems to have people move at a half a mile an hour and expected them to jump for joy. And they were like, that's kind of cool. You know, but, but so, so Zach is exactly right. You really have to be, you have to think about what are the things technically and mechanically and physiologically it can do, but those have to be important to the person who, whether it's a physical therapist, whether it's a patient, they have to want that because otherwise you've made something that, yeah, it, it, it might work, but it isn't viable. And I think exoskeletons have in general have kind of assumed too much. Mm. And Elliot's work is interesting to me because he's sort of saying, well, you know, let's not assume let's, you know, let's measure, let's ask, let's talk about it. And I think that's refreshing. I think it's really good for the field because what we'll learn, you know, could be, it, it will challenge the assumptions and then, and then maybe we won't necessarily design exoskeletons purely and measure our success by whether they've reduced the cost of walking. Right. I don't know. If you ask just about anybody, unless they're, they're they, they suffer from really severely impaired mobility, like, you know, peripheral vascular disease or other conditions where walking is extremely difficult and they want to walk. That's the second part that we don't often talk about very much, right? Is oftentimes people that have a really, really hard time walking. It's not very appealing. <laughs> it's like, they'd rather, you know, they'd rather get around some other way. Um, it's people that are like, and this is what I think is Zach is right in regards to the rehabilitative effect. I mean, we see the value of what we're doing as much on improving walking performance for individuals, 
that really want that. You know, it's not a tool necessarily for somebody who uh, is more severely impaired that doesn't really want to improve their mobility. They have other solutions that they'll adopt. Mm-hmm. This is reminiscent, like, well, one, I think Melissa and I, like, couldn't shake our heads in agreement or say, you know, agree with you more on on your whole philosophy in this process. And, like, you know, just huge kudos to you for really following through on that and doing good on that and going beyond just the millions of papers and academic literature that only are optimizing for <laughs> metabolic costs. So maybe not millions, but, you know, uh, the many. And and this actually, yeah, this is reminiscent of a story that you shared with us about receiving a phone call from a woman with a 20-year-old daughter with cerebral palsy, and she wanted her daughter to be able to walk down the aisle at her wedding. Ray, yeah, you should you could share the full story, but if you, yeah, share the story and kind of how do you go from that phone call to actually delivering something that's useful and um, user-friendly and, you know, isn't going to end up as closet junk? Yeah, and if I could add something to that, I think... I think we're starting to hear more about user getting users involved and in the process of research and development, but I think there's still not a clear grasp of what like what does that actually look like in in practice. So maybe with this example, if you could share what what that did look like, that would be really interesting. Yeah. So so one thing I wasn't prepared for. Zach did not prepare me for this, which I am I'm. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm psychologically <laughs> scarred. <laughs> Traumatized. <laughs> um, I was not. I was like, cool. This is. Oh, this is. This is going to be so great. I was not prepared for the emotional reaction of, in particular, parents of children who have, you know, these children. You know, when they're sitting there and they're they're watching their child move in this device, and they're like. That is a life-changing experience, and that is exactly what you hear. It is, it is extremely emotional. I mean, it is, it is, and I was not prepared for how I would feel in that situation. It was very, very humbling and incredibly motivating because you see how much these, I mean, these parents and these kids are heroic. What they do every day just blows my mind, and they do it just like it's, what they do every day, right? And so, uh, my brother it lives in Salt Lake City. He, I, oh, he's a personal trainer and and does really interesting stuff. And I and I ask him if somehow we got connected to this family. And yeah, this woman reached out, as people do all the time, and said, "I've seen this. This is really interesting." And the the idea was that. Um, her daughter's 20 and she, she did, she wanted to, she said, I think, I think she could actually walk down the aisle of her wedding if you had your technology. And I was like, Oh man, that's a, that's a really tall order. That's like, uh, I mean, that's, but that's really tangible. So, I mean, I went to Salt Lake and, and, uh, and put it on her, met her at my brother's facility. And, you know, we, we had that experience. It made a big difference for her. You know, could she walk down the aisle of a wedding, probably if she used it enough, you know, to, and that's really where kind of where we are in the journey. We're at that not quite place where you can't just say here, you can have it. It's a regulated medical device. That's not cleared for that intended purpose yet. And this is, this is a bad example of usability. I'll get into your question, Melissa, about usability in a second, because this is, there's a more formal way to do it that you actually have to do um, when you're developing this technology. But 
you know, being, being, uh, and Zach cringes a little bit when I go and do this uh, with people because we probably shouldn't in some ways, you know, there's probably, um, but there's a, there's, I think there's more benefit than there is risk. And this is, I think one of the things that you, you sort of have to accept, right? We're in this place where we have this technology. We think it's helpful. We have a lot of demand and people reaching out and they want to use it. How do you, but you can't let them have it. So, but you can maybe provide them a glimpse of what it's like and then keep them informed so that when you're ready to give it to them and they can use it, you know, officially, you can deliver it to them. And that's where we are with this family and and many other families. But to your point, Lisa, about, so if you are going to build a regulated medical device product, you're required by the FDA to do usability. I mean, you, you actually have to, you have to sit down with users. You have to identify what their needs are. You have to test repeatedly that you're actually able to meet those needs with your product. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a well-defined process of product development that you know, medical device companies have used long before we came along that really we're, we're interacting with users in a very direct way because our product does. I mean, there are other, obviously, if you're working on something that's, you know, under the skin, it's a different experience. But it's interesting because if you stayed in a research laboratory and you conducted biomechanics research and robotics research, and you never start thinking about how you, if you're going to commercialize that, like, how does that actually get out to help people? What if, how do I make my thing actually get into the real world? I wish we taught more of that, you know, what that process is like, what's required. It's not rocket science by any stretch. It's a, it's procedures and processes that you have to follow and they're, they're well documented, but it it's, yeah, you, you have to spend time with people with the product and they have to give you feedback. That's, and if you haven't done that, you will not clear your device. You, I mean, FDA would say, didn't test it on enough people. Not just for safety and effectiveness. This is different. You know, this is usability. I want to add add something that we learned that's really important. You know, we've gotten to know some of our research participants extremely well. They've worked with us in the lab for four or five years as the technology has developed. And in many ways, they've become our kind of friends and we genuinely enjoy seeing them, and we all, but we also really value their feedback. And it turns out that kids and adults are really intuitive. At they, they're intuitive. They know kind of the answer that you may want to be arriving at. Like, is the device helpful? Is it better than this? And oftentimes, you know, they'll tell you what you want to hear, and they they pick up on that. And so, getting the their their actual experience and their actual honest feedback is quite a bit more difficult. And I think when we were starting, it was more of this ignorance is bliss mindset. Like, look, we are drinking from our Kool-Aid, like Ray was saying, we've created this amazing device. All of our participants, they love it. You know, they, they want to use the device instead of walking um, without it. And there's really, you could stop there and, and be ignorant or you could dig deeper and we've we've had to learn how to ask questions in such a way where we get an, an honest answer. And I think that's something that I've learned that applies across many domains in biomechanics, not just exoskeletons. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I'm trying to remember, I, I remember listening to a talk on something similar before where they were doing user studies, I think with exoskeletons actually, and they were talking about how they actually realized that they, they couldn't ask the right 
questions. So they just stopped asking so many questions. And instead, they just kind of let them start sharing organically and, and kind of speak out loud what, what they were thinking. Because it can be tricky to ask questions that are allowing people to answer honestly, especially when, you know, you're the one that, that designed it, you're excited, like everyone's excited to try it. And especially if you're present too, you know, they might want to not, not like make you feel bad or something like that. Um, so there's a lot of nuance in getting user feedback that we um, might not necessarily think about at first. Mm-hmm. You can tell somebody, and we've, we've done this, I'm, I'm uh, sheepishly admitting that we've done this. You, you can actually tell somebody that it's on when it's off and they'll, they'll respond like, oh, this feels amazing. I can totally feel it working, but it's doing nothing. Wow. So that's a, to Zach's point. You have to be really thoughtful about the experience that you create for an individual and make it one where you can actually get feedback. And, and I think what I'm, I've learned having done use the device with lots of different people, mostly in more of a demonstration role is I don't really ask them a lot of questions. I just watch. There's a lot you can learn just by observing, you know, how people are, are they into it? Are they, you know, thinking about it? Physical therapists are the worst. They just overthink it like crazy. You know, they're just like walking super slow and they're trying to figure out every little thing that the device is doing. And, you know, and then, and then I'm just like, will you just walk? I mean, this is a walking device. It's not a walking device. So anyway, so that's, yeah, Zach's right. There's a lot, there's a lot more nuance that in getting feedback about, you know, the devices, any kind of system like this, then, and we're not trained to do it, right? I mean, there's people who run focus groups all the time who are experts at doing this. That's what they do. They extract really interesting information. And it goes to sort of this, you know, there's all these other, when you do this, when you're trying to commercialize, you run into all these other experts, right? There's your regulatory expert. There's your quality expert. There's your usability expert. There's your, you know, legal expert. You know, you're, it's a super collaborative experience. It has to be. Otherwise, you, you won't succeed. I love that. And I think it highlights a point we were making earlier and sort of before the interview about the human side of science, right? And, you know, thinking about all of these things from so many different perspectives, including in how you're getting feedback. So thank you so much for sharing those experiences. I think that'll be super helpful and exciting for to hear for our, our audience. On another, like another piece of the human side of science. Ray, you mentioned you're passionate about preparing students for entrepreneurial experiences. You think that's something that should be taught more. And so if you could just maybe give us, you know, quick top three tips for for students who, you know, maybe want to be entrepreneurs. I think Melissa and I have thought about this a lot in our own careers, but like feel like we don't know where to start or don't know how to be prepared for that journey. Um, and yeah, so so any advice that you think is helpful would be great. Yeah, I'll give a couple of things. One is, is just be observant. So look around in your domain and look for ways that you think you see, see if you can identify things that maybe that could be done differently. Where's the pain points and things? Could be something you're working on, could be something you see, could be somebody getting on and off a bus. I don't know what it is, right? But if just be curious about the world and look for, because that sets you up in the mindset of an entrepreneur, right? Which is, huh, 
I've noticed this and I think there's a better way to do that. Right. So that's a, that's one piece of advice is be open and curious. Don't, you know, again, don't drink too much of your own Kool-Aid. Um, you're extremely bright, talented, blah, 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 but you have to watch, you have to look and, and, uh, you know, um, the second thing I think I would say is if you get a chance to intern or get your first job, do it at a startup. It should be mandatory. Do it at a startup. You'll, you'll, learn you'll learn way more about being an entrepreneur by being in a small company that's trying to survive than you will by reading about it or taking a class about it or studying about it just do it just get in find an internship small companies like ours are always looking for talent because we don't have the capital to to afford you know uh huge staffs so live it find something that is uh and and that's not hard it's, it's really not, I think you have to, you have to learn where to find those companies, right? You have to, it's a different channel. You have to go and look at where, um, you know, you, you can go to angel groups, venture capital groups that interact with these, you know, these portfolio companies. And the third thing I would say is you have to have a robust tolerance for failure. You can't be, you can't be, it's like, you just because you're going to bang your head against a bunch of things, and some, many of them are not going to work. And I mean, I've been on this is the fourth startup that I've been on, and for the most part, the other three we sold one of them a long time ago, but most haven't worked. That's okay. You know, we're just moving the field forward. So you have to have kind of a thick skin. You're, he'll know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know a lot more. It's like you know, if you think about applying for a grant or writing a paper times a hundred. It's kind of the, so you just have to have that mindset of I'm just going to keep going. So those would be, that'd be a few things that I, I think we need way more young people to enter into startups than we're getting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are great tips to start. Be observant, live it and be tolerant to failure. I think are, are great, great places to start as students and exciting to get in that space. Zach, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be more difficult than you think it is. And people are going to tell you that it's more difficult than you think it is. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, 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 I get it. It's going to be more difficult. But it's still, I don't know. It's like still beyond <laughs> that. <laughs> In whatever it is you're doing. And yeah, I think it's just really important to to find your motivation and, and reconnect with what's motivating you to, to be an entrepreneur and to do something new in the world and something novel, because without that motivation, you're just going to burn out. And it is a hundred percent. Okay. If you don't want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> right. The other thing is it's not for everybody. It really isn't. I mean, if you want job security, if you want, you know, you love like hierarchy, you really sort of feel like you've got, you know, you've got your list. It's really well-defined. Every day, you know, you, it's, it doesn't change very much, right? I mean, great. Then go down that path for sure. But if you want, you know, if, if, if chaos is a little bit more okay, then you'll probably do fine in a, in, a, in a startup. And a lot of direction. I drive Zach crazy because, you know, like, well, we should do this. Oh, my God, really? I mean, what about the last thing we just talked about? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, those are great points, though. I mean, it's it takes a special person, I think, to thrive in in chaos. So, <laughs> um, to your point, you know, it's not for everyone, but if someone is interested, these are great points, and if they want to experience it and see what it's like, you know, try to get involved in a startup in in some way and and test it out and see if it's for you. So, yeah, thank you for sharing all of that with us. We actually just have one question left, but before we ask that, we wanted to quickly ask how people can best follow you and your work or learn more about Biomodem? Hmm. We post quite a bit on LinkedIn because it's really more of a professional network, you know, for us. So, and Instagram. So you can follow us there, Biomodem or Biomodem Health on Instagram. Uh, Our website is usually pretty good. I'm not personally much of a social media person. So I'll start by saying that. So you won't find me doing a lot of that activity. But I would say to any listener, please reach out. I'm easy to find. Um, I'll give you that challenge. I'm not going to tell you how to find me. So if you want to reach out, (laughs) figure that out. That's the first bar. Uh, I'll I'll respond. There's going to be some barriers in (laughs) triadic. You got to want it a little bit. Uh, Yeah, And, you know, from the scientific perspective, Zach's lab is immensely productive in regards to publications and papers and grants. So I would say that's another that's another great way to keep up from the, you know, from the academic scientific perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. I think we'll have, we'll add those websites and social media handles and we can add your website to Zach uh, to the, to the show notes. So that's really helpful. Thanks. So our final question is what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Zach, do you want to start us off? I'd love to. I think it's good. I'm going to cheat a little bit and kind of talk about what I'm hopeful for with Biomodem. Um, But, you know, I can't wait until we have wearable robots in the home for kids with cerebral palsy. That's what I'm really hopeful for. I'll just keep it at that. That's not cheating. (laughs) I am, for biomechanics as a field, boy, that's a big question, right? My gosh. I'm fascinated by what is going to happen with the our increasing ability to understand how people are interacting with their environments in real time, whether they have a disability or not. That feels like we're going to we're going to have a lot of opportunities to better understand what the challenges are for those individuals because we'll be able to figure out, you know, through not through survey or some other pieces, but so I think those tools are going to be really interesting, whether it's, you know, something that you wear, whether it's computer vision, you know, that's that's uh, looking at how you're moving, <laughs> whether that's you have permission to do that or not would be a whole nother question. But I think that is and that's a that's a, a vision I think we've had for a little while, you know, in terms of of how can we apply our knowledge to to the real world challenges that exist for individuals. And, and, and then, you know, moving the laboratory, I can envision a future biomechanics where all the work's happening out in the field. None of it's happening in the lab. You know, you do the lab to maybe do some validation or some verification of your, you know, that you're measuring what you think you are, but yeah. And to Zach's point, there are a billion people on the planet who the simple task of walking is hard. If we can make a dent in that in some way, 
that's enough. Yeah. And I think you are. And, you know, this podcast has been incredible to get to talk to you about how you're making that journey and where you started there. And also just see an amazing friendship and collaboration between the two of you and how you play off one another, your modesty and humility, and, you know, but also the pump up of each other and, you know, kind of being each other's number one fan. That's been just really great and refreshing to see. And I think Melissa and I, that's something we really value too. So thank you so, so much for sharing your experiences, for being here. And yeah, we're just so excited to have you and hopefully we'll come visit you all in uh, in the future too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Doors always open. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you so much. Of course. Thanks so much to Ray and Zach for taking the time to be on Boom. If you enjoyed the interview and learned something from the episode, I know we learned so many things. Make sure to let us know and share the interview in the episode with someone that you think would find value in it. So, you know, copy it into an e-Valentine, put the link <laughs> right in there and send out your Valentines. You can do the top three entrepreneurship tips. Like those are really good to share. Those just really speak those the language of love. Really? Exactly. <laughs> Boom is a love language in case you didn't know. <laughs> Before we wrap up, we have just a couple really quick research fails. <laughs> question mark. <laughs> so you might have thought that we failed by not asking the fails question in the interview, but Ray had actually said something about failing to realize that not everyone's objective is to be able to walk. And that was an assumption they'd made early on in their trajectory and had to very much learn from their user interviews and things like that. So... We're taking that as their fail. Yeah, I think it's good to highlight that again because I think that's a really important learning that they had and that we we got to hear in the interview. And obviously, I'm just (laughs) 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 reiterate my fail in pronouncing Elliot's name. So not to draw more attention to that, but, you know, it was a fail. Elliot, if you're listening, these are personal (laughs) apologies right to you. (laughs) (laughs) Please let me know if you forgive me so I can sleep again. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, and Peter Washington for the music. Hi, Peter, if you're listening in Hawaii. (laughs) If you'd like to submit a research fail, someone an interview, or you'd like to get involved, please email us at biomechanicsonderminds at gmail, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And if you've done all of that, then go over to YouTube and check out our (laughs) Boom channel as well. (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics. Biomechanics. Off our minds. Off our minds.